You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? How is the view from the upper tier of the American League East standings? Uh, after the Baltimore Orioles have effectively OPSed their way to a successful uh, four and one um, road trip, walking, I think, approximately 36,000 times over five games. Uh, <laughs> Sam. 35,999 of which uh, are by Gunnar Henderson. Gunnar Henderson by himself. Uh, I think Adley, Adley is now walked in three runs this year. Is that true? I believe that is correct. And. Yeah may by the end of the month have more walks this season than Adam Jones had in his entire career. <laughs> this is this is this is where I would like to start us to start off today, Sam. Is this a betrayal of the Orioles DNA? Ooh. I, uh, we, we we come from we come from the free swinging ways of Adam Jones <laughs> and Chris Davis and uh two true outcomes Mark Trumbo um and two you know uh, <laughs> we we don't really have uh we don't we don't we don't do this. This is Red Sox bullshit. This is Yankees work the pitcher and make them throw a bunch of pitches bullshit. I want to know is this un Orioles? Well, I mean, definitively it is. We have never <laughs> seen anything like this before. Uh, I am am to quote the bard, I am amazed and know not what to say. Um which is uh Seems to be the way that uh, Gunnar Henderson is treating most pitches. Yeah. <laughs> I am amazed fair, and know not what to say. To be fair, some of his uh, own throws to first base. Eh, we're not going to worry about that too much, are we? I'm nah. very concerned about it. Nah, um, nah. no worries. No, I, I, I agree with you, Alan. This is uh, uncharted territory for us as as modern vintage Oriole fans. Um, the... Pitching defense and and three run home runs strategy that we have come to know so well is really seems to be maybe evolving before our eyes. The Orioles at one point this week, I'm not sure if this is still true as we record today, were one overall. I'm going to say that again. Number one overall in the major leagues in on base percentage at 357 as a team. Now, obviously, they're not going to end up there at the end of the year. But for them to have spent any meaningful amount of time in that position is a radical transformation <laughs> and I, I mean, of the Orioles we thought we knew. And, and you know, the, the Orioles from last season um, had a lot of pop, right? But they mm -hmm. hit a lot of solo home runs. Mm -hmm. A lot of, mm -hmm. of, of homers with nobody on base. I, I don't know whether or not if you're swinging for the fences, you stop <laughs> drawing walks. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they, if they are, in fact, mutually exclusive for these young guys who, like, if they start um, trying to match each other for homers through the lineup again, um, whether this sort of uh, patience and good eye uh, goes. But... Um, yeah, that many home runs with runners on base is a very enticing prospect. 
Yeah. I mean, if that starts to become more a part of the equation, I would be very excited. But something that I would love to acknowledge is what you said, which is Adley has now walked in several runs this year. If you just Google Orioles walk, the, <laughs> there's three highlights. Adley Rutschman uh-huh. RBI walk, Ryan yeah. O'Hearn RBI walk, Mullins uh-huh. RBI walk. Like Yes, yes. And I think Gunnar, <laughs> Gunnar Henderson's walked in a couple of runs. The, that to me is the biggest difference so far is this phenomenon of runners on base, bases loaded, and not swinging our way out of high leverage situations. And yeah, there have been a couple times I can think of off the top of my head where Adley's walked in a run and then the next person has popped out. So like the bases were loaded and we only got one run, but I'll take that over the bases being loaded and striking out or popping up or grounding out, which happened a lot last year. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing I, I would really love to know the answer to. And I don't know if it's an answer we can get, but the question to me is, is this the result of a an actual different top-down offensive philosophy? It seems like it is, because if we combine this with the fact that Mateo and Mullins and others have also been running at every possible opportunity, it seems like the Orioles have finally caught up to the idea that if you flood the base paths... Mm-hmm. You just give yourself more opportunities for runs to end pressure, up crossing pressure, the pressure, plate. Pressure, pressure, Yeah. Which is something that our friendly counterparts in the American League East have understood for years <laughs> and that we have, for some reason, foregone as an approach. And maybe, you know, th- this is also a function of having talent that is able to actually put that strategy into play, finally. But it has been... It, it's fun to watch, but it's also confusing because my emotional programming of watching the Orioles is so much more oriented towards, I hope somebody gets a hit and then I hope somebody hits a home run because that's, that's, that's all I can really yeah. hope for. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, it, it feels much more like total baseball than what has been happening in in Baltimore for the last couple of years and as a um you know uh my my que- I think I think you're right to ask the question is this an intentional change in offensive strategy uh probably but I wonder if the change in offensive strategy was brought about by the change in rules because the Orioles seem to be of all the teams, you know, they have a lot of talent with the bat in their hands, but um, it seems as though the numbers incentivized a different style of offense last year. And all of the bean counters in the warehouse looked at the changes in the shift and the changes in the size of the base path, uh, the bases, and they were like, okay, um, this. This changes the weight just enough that we should we should we should push all of our all of our chips into a different um, to a different pot. Very exciting. And if in fact this new version of the Orioles, if you can thank the rules changes for this new version of the Orioles, then um, what a what a um, masterstroke from an organization 
in MLB who has been truly resistant to change for so long. I yeah. Mean, if they get credit well, for like, and I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a much more, it's a just through my narrow window of just watching the Orioles play. This is a significantly more interesting product than, um, three strikeouts an inning until someone wanders into a 425 foot home run. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, to go with apparently Sam Dingman's new favorite player, Adam Frazier, as a case study. Mm. I mean, think about the difference. Think about the difference between Adam Frazier and Rugnet Odor, right? Rugnet Odor <laughs> is a Mark Trumbo-esque player. Rugnet Odor, here's damning with faint praise, uh, is... Or this is just damning, I suppose. This isn't really even faint praise. Rugnet Odor is like the poor man's Mark Trumbo, right? He's like not quite as good of a hitter as Mark Trumbo, but he's the same type of hitter as Mark Trumbo, except that he's left-handed. Mm. Um, so, and he was our big free agent signing of last offseason. Yeah. Um, not this past one, but the, the previous offseason. Um, and played second base mostly, but could also play some outfield. And, you know, Rugnet Odor, great clubhouse guy, was going to smack a walk-off home run every once in a while, but most of the time was going to strike out. Mm -hmm. um, and this offseason, we bring in Adam Frazier, who, as has been pointed out a couple times on the various radio and TV broadcasts, is actually one of the hardest guys in the major leagues to strike out. Mm. He... His whole thing is, you're not going to strike me out. I'm going to either put the ball in play or walk. Um, and so, you know, if that is, if bringing him in, I remember, you know, when... A poor man's Dick Markakis. There you go. And when we got him, there was, I remember there was a lot of head scratching. But if we look at this through the lens that we've been talking about today, perhaps Adam Frazier is indicative of oh, he's, he's the metaphor he's the metaphor the met oh that should have been his nickname <laughs> Dang it. all right we'll get we'll get we'll get judge marco on the line the metaphor um no i think i think it's exactly it he's 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 the um calm approach uh the but you know pinch hit for uh, mateo when he pulled up lame running to first base and then smacked a two-run home run so um he does. He, he does have an approach at the plate that has can pay positive dividends, I suppose. Yes. Well, this actually is related to the next thing I wanted to discuss with you, Mr. Smith, which is uh, I think maybe the biggest thing that I'm feeling here in week three, or as we come to the end of week three, I suppose, of the 2023 season, is I think maybe the most fascinating difference for me between this team and even last year's team is that for years, say, you know, from 2018 on, up through last year, really, it felt like our margin for error was zero. If anybody got hurt, if anybody went down for any meaningful amount of time, we were going to be running AAA guys out there against major league competition. It was just triple A guys at best. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We are, are, we had no, we had nobody of substance on the major league roster, let alone waiting in the wings. 
Whereas this year, something that I keep noticing is that at first, when it seems like somebody's going to miss time or is underperforming and might get sent down, Cole Irvin, for example, I have this familiar panic response, which is if we lose that person, there's no credible reinforcement coming. But that's actually not true. So, like, Cole Irvin underperforms in his first three starts. 2018 to 2023, he's getting 27 more starts at a (laughs) 10.66 earned run average because unless there's something physically wrong with him, there's nobody else to throw the baseball at the plate. Yeah. Whereas now, we have in the... Like, so, obviously... um, Tyler Wells goes into the rotation uh, currently when we need somebody to step in. But we also have, down in the minor leagues, getting meaningful innings and building himself up to a starter's workload, D.L. Hall, who is not a pitcher in the minor leagues who's available to come up and fill some innings, but an actual top 100 major league prospect. Somebody who may well become a, I don't know who a good comp for him is, like a a Wade Miley type of pitcher at the big league level, which would be incredible if that happened. Um, Mateo's hip uh, goes wonky, and it doesn't seem like there's significant concern about his health um, when he was uh, since he was pulled from the game the other day, but let's say, you Walked know... out of the clubhouse under his own power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's say, God forbid, he is injured. Um, we have several top 100 major league prospect shortstops in the minor leagues right now. Jordan Westberg, uh, probably at the top of that list, who mashed all through spring training and is, like, just waiting for a spot to open up. Um, the ceiling, let's say, yeah, the ceiling that the, de- that that depth gives us is, is so much higher. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, I think that the, there's, th- that is another way in which this feels unlike an Orioles team that I've ever watched before. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there, there has been a time, you know, when the cavalry was on the way, um, yeah. when, it felt like there was some talent in the in the in the minors, um, but in that moment when we were all waiting for the new arms to come up and hoping and praying that they would be great, um, it didn't feel like the people who were there were doing anything to keep them on the farm. <laughs> yeah, you know, it didn't it didn't feel like if we, we were waiting for the cavalry because everybody else was incapable of eating innings <laughs> at all. And this does feel different, right? Like it does feel like um, there's there's kind of competition, uh, not just, you know, maybe even outside the 40-man roster for uh, like regular spots and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and for regular competition. Um, you never want anybody, especially someone who was secretly maybe having the best start to the season of any Oriole, Mateo, uh, yeah. to be on the shelf for any period of time. But um, yeah, it, it is, it is, uh, it, it's, it's really, it feels like we're not rooting for the same team. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had this thought yesterday, you know, last year coming up to the trading deadline, um, there was so much drama about are the Orioles going to buy or sell? Are we going to trade away people who have been like not just solid contributors, but star level producers um, in the name of this seemingly never ending rebuild? And obviously we did do that. And look, it's way too early to predict whether or not we're going to be in contention at the trading deadline. But let's say for the sake of this conversation that we are. But did you see um, Trey Mancini has had the worst start to the season yeah. of a baseball player? It's it's a little difficult to rec- reckon with the fact that we, <laughs> we, we do seem to have purely at a baseball level traded Trey Mancini at exactly the right time. <laughs> and sort of traded the closer at the right time, too. Yeah, that... I mean, Bautista is just um, uh, dominant. I was thinking we should start a new segment, Alan, called Mike Elias, You Clever Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, we, you know, had we been potting regularly at that time, <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, I think we did do one um, one podcast yes. right around right around the yes, trade deadline. So we it's did. not like we're... but. I, I don't think you have to go far to check the record to go to know that like um I disagreed um <laughs> with um the Mike Elias on a on a cup on basically everything that he has done mm-hmm. from the trade deadline up until right now. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. I I have been um uh you know the Wishing that he had signed a, a starter and feeling like um, he was pretending to be Fox News and settling uh, all offseason. <laughs> um, but I n- now feel like maybe just let Mike cook. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, he seems listen, to have man. been right about everything. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was a lot of consternation uh, on Orioles Twitter that we were not more in play for Carlos uh, Rodon. I never know how to say his last name. Carlos Rodon. Well, he has yet to throw a pitch in 2023 Mm. and doesn't seem to be anywhere close to doing so. Jamison Tyon is another guy who I would love to have seen us in on. Also on the disabled list. Mm. Chris Bassett. ERA close to five, I believe. Obviously, it's April. You know, these things can still turn around. But in the early going, it's a little hard for me to point to a anybody. That should have happened that we, we we now wish had gotten across the finish line. Yeah, and like you know, in two I weeks, mean, except for except for Degrom, of course. <laughs> but Degrom is hurt too. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if 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 Degrom makes it, it you know, to to June. Um, it it's it seems like it could go either way, and maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. <laughs> not that I want him to be hurt. I don't want anybody to be hurt, but I would not mind if he underperformed. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you just look, uh, I think it, yesterday, uh, Madison Bumgarner straight DFA'd. Like, Adios. Uh, it does feel like those, certainly the big pitcher contract based on past performance 
which I will confess I was wishing that the Orioles would do yeah. um, this offseason doesn't work out much. Um, yeah. Well, there's for sale. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are there are no shortage of pundits who Ken Rosenthal included, you know, maybe the most high profile baseball commentator currently working. He has publicly said, like, at a certain point, the Orioles just have to spend money. It's about you just have to send a signal, spend the money. That's what that's what the fans want. Excuse me. Speaking as an actual fan, as long as we're several games over 500 in the early going, I'm happy. I'm a happy camper. I would, you know, would I have liked one of those moves to have been made? Sure. Am I also willing to admit that Mike Elias may be looking at better information than I am? (laughs) Yes, I am. And like, I think the thing that those people don't, the people who say that sort of stuff don't understand is like, what we care about is watching meaningful baseball and winning. That That's what we care about. And I think the other thing those people don't understand is the entire recent history of the Orioles is, I like our guys. Mm. Like, the 2012, who the hell are the, the Nate McClouthian Orioles mm-hmm. of 2012, mm-hmm. very similar squad to the one that we're running out there now. Um, yeah. So yeah, let the, I, you know. let the Yankees be the Yankees or the Dodgers be the Dodgers or the Padres be the Padres. What? Um, yeah. Where where they sort of like uh, accumulate a, t- a very top heavy squad of, of proven all stars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, you know. Elias comes from Houston, right? Like Houston yeah. is an absolute, we like our guys championship team over many, mm-hmm. many years. Yeah. Um, all those, all those Houston guys who now are household names, Jordan Alvarez, Alex Bregman, and look, cheating acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs> who, knows, name. who knows how much of it is real. But I, at this point, Jordan Alvarez, let's just say, has more than proven um, it, he is just a masher and it doesn't matter if he knows what pitch is coming. Um, and then when you look at the terrifying talent level of their pitching staff, that, that wasn't cheating. That's just real good prospect development. And yeah. all of those guys, they're household names now, but they were brought along the same way the Orioles prospects, knock wood, seem to be being brought along. So, um... Mike Elias, you clever bastard. Um, I'm still but- okay if we sign Otani to a 75-year, $3.4 billion uh, contract this offseason. Would, look, would anybody complain about that? No, I don't think anybody would, would complain about that. Um, here, here's a question, though. Uh-huh. This is where I was going a moment ago, and uh, this is ob- it's yeah. obviously way too early to have this conversation. But I mean, look, we we have eleven wins uh, as of podcast moment right now. It took us until I believe the thirtieth game of the season last year to get to eleven wins. Um, you know, let's talk. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so let's say we get to late July, and we're still in contention, and Mateo is still performing. Re- I don't want to say. Over, let's say overperforming cautiously because we still don't know if this uh, this version of him is here to stay. 
he was a, he was a highly touted prospect, right? He yeah. Had, he he's he has this is not. I mean, he he underperformed in his first two stops, but he's a okay. Yeah, just checking. I, he's not he's not like a um a career journeyman who is lucking into something. He is a a, a talented player who has underperformed. Yeah. Hmm. So let's say we get to late July. We know that we have numerous elite shortstop prospects in the system slash already on the team, Gunnar Henderson. Would you trade him for, uh, I don't know, starting pitching reinforcements, offensive reinforcements, perhaps a little bit of... um, uh, Mateo for Brian Reynolds of the Pirates type action. What do we feel about it? Let's talk about it. I think that the Orioles would be in a position coming up to this trade deadline where I would be really surprised if they um, sold major league talent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I could maybe see them... But they seem a little bit averse to this. I could maybe see them doing sort of like an Atlanta Braves two years ago thing where they sold some um, farm talent for some get you over um, Major League Baseball pitching. Um, but I would be it, it, it seems like the, the, the way that this team is constructing itself is we like our guys and it would be like that's why I'm that this is why I'm still kind of bummed that we didn't make a free agent signing because a free agent signing costs money but it doesn't cost talent right it doesn't cost um picks or prospects going the other direction and I think that that is something that the Orioles feel kind of loathe to do um even with a super exciting team last year I mean if we were like free and clear leading the American League um and you were talking about sort of bolstering something maybe I could see it but I would be I'd be really surprised if the Orioles got in the business of letting talent go um in a trade deadline situation I totally hear that I totally understand that I totally respect that I do just want to say Again, Mike Elias is looking at better information oh, than no. me. If he does it, if he does it, I'm going to have to sit back and be like, oh, well, I, I guess Mateo's going to fall off a cliff in August. All right, let's go. <laughs> well, I just uh, I just took a quick gander at the Pirates roster and was reminded that their shortstop of the future, O'Neill Cruz, is on the 60-day IL. And mm. Brian Reynolds, they are currently involved in a contentious long-term contract negotiation with. So... We help them out by giving them an overperforming shortstop to fill that gap. They help us out by giving us a mashing outfielder who is also a high on base percentage guy and hits for a really good average. Do we end up signing Brian Reynolds Can to a contract extension? I mean, I have, I have, I have no idea. I, I'm, I'm honestly, I, I don't know his uh, vorps and schnorps on the defensive side. <laughs> I mean, all I'll say is, even if he can't defensively that would be a net even to swap (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's can i just say that's another interesting thing right let's say we were to bring in a a heavy hitting outfielder like at the moment 
who is that person taking over for? Mm. Um, you know, like our outfield right now, like is the starting outfield is Hayes, Mullins, Santander. I mean, I think Tony Taters is the is the person who, based on our previous discussion about like push pressure from people who are underperforming, he's the guy who goes into the the platoon. Right. Which like Which is like last year's <laughs> Orioles home run leader. <laughs> right. Like, let's say you know, Anthony Santander becomes your fourth outfielder. That's not a bad situation to be in. <laughs> no, not at all. And when's not the last time we could say something like that? Yeah, no, the, the team depth, man. It's it's a it's it's a brave new world. It's a brave new world. Yeah, I mean, to to go back to your original point, though, I, you know, again, I think Michael Elias, you clever bastard. I think he is. Um, I, I have to admit that he's doing a pretty good job of roster construction here, and he's not borrowing too much from. Um, the future of our battery to bolster the pitching. And I'm surprised that that's been working now. Granted, it's been working against the white Sox and the nationals for the last week and a half. So let's, let's yes. all. And here cool come the tigers slightly. and the Royals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. But you know, there will be a period in there where we have to go back and play the American league East again, that's coming. Um, and uh, so Let's let's we'll we'll see where we are after the schedule gets a little bit harder, um, but you know I I, I think that that uh, <laughs> it's it's not a very interesting podcasty take, but like I think we got to let Mike cook until he proves himself unable to create the dish of our desires. I mean I I don't know I think it is sort of an interesting take like it is not popular in Orioles commentary land to believe in what Elias is doing. Mm. And I know that part of what we want to talk about today is um, front office chicanery. So uh, I'm not, this isn't a a blanket sign-off. I'm not, it's not as though I'm not still somewhat wary of what this group of shadowy orange necktie-wearing individuals is up to. But... um, the early returns, let's say, on his 2023 strategy are, I begrudgingly have to give him some some propers. So if we're going to do a regular Michael ISU uh, KG Bastard segment, um, we're also going to do a, uh, a regular owner's watch uh, here on the Baltimore uh, Baltimoreans. Um, as we've talked about before, Sam and I are both a little worried um, that the Angelos clan keeps protesting too much about the Orioles staying in Baltimore. Um, but maybe we'll call this segment, at least our owner isn't blank. Uh, <laughs> and coming up this week uh, on at least our owner isn't blank, at least our owner isn't John Fisher. Um I'll tell you, going into last week, I did not know the owner of the Oakland Athletics. So if you, dear listener, did not know that the shadowy billionaire behind the uh, Oakland A's team was John Fisher, maybe now you do. Um, But I think John Fisher gives us kind of a new look at the crappy owner um, vibe, right? You know, we've got, we've had owners in the past that were truly bad 
You got your Dan Snyders, you got your uh, Donald Sterlings, you got your Roman Abramoviches. We've had owners who were, um, you know, comfortable with uh, the team um, being in contention every year for the playoffs, but never really kind of going all in um, or, you know, being a sort of a small market team in a small market um, and, and that being a perfectly acceptable outcome for ownership. I have not seen the subtly tank the value of my own franchise so that when I move the team to Las Vegas, literally no one has is left to protest move. Um, maybe you could look back at what happened to the Seattle Supersonics on their way to Oklahoma City. Um, maybe you could look at the LA Chargers uh, like you know the 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 louis the the st louis slash la slash st louis slash la chargers as another example of this <laughs> the whiplash um, chargers <laughs> the whiplash chargers but I, you know it's a it's a it's a dastardly move <laughs> uh and it seems to be paying off because um not only is oakland once again very bad at baseball but no one seems to care yeah it's i know in my own life, I think two A's fans, and they are not happy campers right mm. now. And I think it's been interesting for me to, you know, text with them a bit so far this season because it's making me realize two things, I suppose. One is two conflicting, somewhat conflicting things. One is perhaps in the vein of Michael Elias, you clever bastard, we are more fortunate than we like to admit in the sense that, yes, we have meaningful and valid concerns about the way the Angelos ownership group runs the team, but it does seem like our, you know, alleged tanking of the last few years did have a strategy behind it and was not just a valuation, a business valuation scheme Um, at the moment, at the moment, because if we really, if they really didn't care about the team, would they have done the Adam Frazier things um, that they did do and that seemed to be bearing fruit in the early going? But you could also look at it as... The owner of the Oakland A's, if this Vegas thing works out, stands to do very, very well for himself. Um, and it's easy to imagine there are other smaller market owners looking at that and going, "Well, I, mean, I could it's... take a short-term hit in public perception and come out financially smelling like a rose. Right. It's, it's, it's chief. Like it's a it's a league leading example of someone looking at a franchise as an asset, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Where he says this asset in Oakland is not worth as much as this asset in Vegas will be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to continue to steer this team into the ditch, such that like just you know, more and more sports franchises are sort of like the crown jewel in a bunch of wildly overwealthy humans sort of collection of assets 
Um, and one of the things that's so amazing about them is they don't make any more. <laughs> there's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's a limited number of Major League Baseball franchises. There's a limited number of NFL franchises. Um, and because of that, you know, ownership of that asset is viewed by these billionaires as an incredibly important and desirable thing. Um, it, it does feel like in the last couple of weeks, maybe because of Possum Gate and all of the sort of like, uh, you know, ridiculousness <laughs> that that implied. Um, for those of you not following, a possum was uh, loose in the A's stadium. And <laughs> that was sort of like the only thing people talked about with the A's for a week, which is not a great look for the baseball team. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and unfortunately, that... possum was not a nickname for one of their... Uh... <laughs> Fleet-footed players. <laughs> Why don't we? That's a great nickname, man. We got to find someone we call Possum. Um, but you know, it, it 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 feels like maybe people are starting to pay a little bit um, of attention to this tactic. But it's like now far too late, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the, the, they've just purchased land in Vegas. Like the writing is completely on the wall and. Yeah because there's been so many years of the Oakland A's being putrid on the diamond, nothing but the most stalwart fan is going to care as they leave. Tough look for Oakland too, man. Like lost the Warriors across the bay to San Francisco. We're going to lose the um, A's. Like that's a, that's, that's a, my heart goes out to that sports city. Yeah, well, especially because, like, it's not like we're talking about no shade to Tulsa, but it's not like we're talking about Tulsa. Like, Oakland is, like, a major coastal city. Um, yeah. And it's it's always confusing to me when places like that can't figure out a way to keep notionally a premier professional sports team around. Well, but it's but around. It, I mean, it, when, when, when you have a system where one billionaire can purchase an asset, hold it, and then choose to switch it and flop it around. Like it doesn't, it's not even really up to the um, city. There's not, there's not much Oakland can do one way or the other. Now, you know, they could be held hostage to rebuilding an entirely new stadium and making it state of the art. And definitely the A stadium sucks, but like, that's not a great <laughs> way to do business either. Like you don't really want to be held hostage by somebody who is hoping to, um, you know, Fisher's group bought the team in 2005, right? He paid approximately 100 and they paid approximately $180 million. The team is now estimated, even though it is ba -ba -ba bad, to be worth $1.1, So they've already thrown almost a zero on that purchase price over the course of 15 years. If they move it to Vegas, suddenly, like, we're talking, you know, and move it into a state-of-the-art stadium and get one player that anybody's ever heard of. Suddenly, that's a three million dollar franchise, a three billion dollar franchise. So, like, just in terms of the financial um, decisions that they're making, you know, if you can if you can run a club on essentially like no money, um, which they've been doing for the last fifteen years. You know, their roster, uh, you know, we, we, we've we already talked previously about um, 
um, how we don't love the idea of just looking at how much the players make as a modicum of how good they can be, your 2022 Baltimore Orioles, but the A's continue to lead the the bottom of the, the league in terms of payroll and salary. And every time they get somebody who is even like kind of interesting, thank you for Mateo, for example, they ship him off um, post haste instead of paying him any kind of money. So it's like, it's very clear um, that his way of uh, building a team is extractive, 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 let's move it somewhere else and um, uh, 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 make a bunch of money on that transfer. So my question for you, Sam, is where do we put this in our long-term ranking of cynical and shitty ownership? <laughs> like, it's not Dan Snyder who mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. multiple sexual assault cases against right. him right. and, uh, you know, made his money in, I don't even know how Fisher made his money. I haven't even looked that up, but like, right. Right. Um, it's not Donald Sterling who was a slumlord and stepped on racist. the necks of people <laughs> and a racist to be allowed to continue to own the Clippers. He's not accused of war crimes, <clears throat> Roman Abramovich, but you know, there is something here that feels, um, it's not on the same spectrum, but on its own spectrum, just so um, mercantile, so like aggressively and unpleasantly capitalist that I, I, I almost feel like it also has, like it's, it is its own special circle of hell. It's its own definition of like taking something that generations of people who have cared about and a team where there are so many like things that are uncalculable and important to people who live in Oakland and beyond and like just just shitting on it that it seems like it should be on its own um you know spectrum yeah i mean i guess the phrase that's coming to mind for me is like tier 2 cuz if we if we put you know the mm. the three caballeros of malfeasance <laughs> Uh, you know, in the form of um, uh, Sterling, Abramovich, and um, Snyder in Tier 1. I feel like Tier 2 is you have cleared the lowest possible bar of not, you know, actively participating in murder, subjugation, um, and, uh, you know, generational trauma creation. Good job! (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> but you know, tier two is still not the a, a tier that you want to be in, and you know it may be that there's only three tiers, and all the other sports owners go in tier three, um, or maybe there's maybe there's four tiers. So mm. tier one is um, uh, lawful evil. <laughs> <laughs> tier two. No, no, no. Tier one is chaotic evil. Tier yes. two is lawful evil. Yes. Um, tier three is neutral evil. <laughs> um, and 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 tier four is chaotic neutral. That's chaotic neutral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, I would say the Angelos family is like floating at the top of tier four. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. Because because there there is there is bad ownership that comes from sort of like a, uh, a secession style inability to get your shit together. 
Right. Um, which is maybe not, um, and I think we could probably come up with a bunch of other examples along those lines. We probably need a tier five, which is um, uh, like desirable <laughs> in some way. <laughs> so just the Packers. <laughs> <laughs> In American sports, yes, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing that's interesting, you know, to kind of circle back to where we started here is one of the reasons I would guess that Fisher is able to get away with this to some degree is the toxicity that, like, I forget the guy who owns the Padres, Peter something, um, and Steve... Cohen, who owns the Mets, and I forget the guy who owns the Phillies, John something, I think. Um, these guys are returning to, we saw this past offseason, an extremely, um, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, mid 2000s form of spending um, where you just throw oceans of money at a small handful of players and bet that that can deliver you the pennant. And that creates a an ecosystem where you're either in that class or you cannot hope to compete at that level financially. And so that puts you in a position where perhaps you feel a little bit more pressure, even if, you know, you and I feel like it's invented to drive the value of the team to a point where you can sell it and, and get out. Because if you can't hand out $300, $400 million contracts like popcorn, how are you supposed to compete? Except for the fact that so far, the Mets are underperforming. The Padres are underperforming. The Phillies are underperforming. Who is lapping the entire league the Tampa Bay goddamn Rays, <laughs> who I, are maybe spending less money than the Athletics and are yeah. almost literally unbeatable. unbeatable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, that's, I, that's why sports is fantastic, man. It, yeah. it really like it's it's really it's really lovely. Tampa and, Bay has a total payroll of 74 million, um, which is like not quite Athletics bad. But uh, is like a is like I think two Padres players, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right about that. Like that that's like one like Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. equals the entire Tampa Bay payroll. They're twenty eighth out of thirty. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know. I I think that's an interesting longitudinal so screw thing. Screw you, Keith. To keep an eye on, and then you know. <laughs> The other kind of thing to, to think about here is we, we could also look at what Atlanta and Houston are doing, which is, as we've discussed, developing really elite prospects from within and then spending a lot of money, yes, but to keep those prospects in place, which is a very, like, you know, it's like a 1950s uh, corporate governance sort of model. Um we can we can talk more about the collective bargaining agreement um, that uh, Golden 
state and happened in the NBA recently um, on a different podcast. But I think that's really interesting because I think that there should be a way of incentivizing teams that build from within Mm -hmm. and then um, at some point want to pay their own players market value for the thing that they have built. Yeah. Um, It's a tricky thing. Yeah. Well, uh, as usual, Smith, we've raised a lot of interesting questions here on the show today, uh, but there's one that unfortunately we have not addressed. Um, And I'm going to need an answer to it before we let folks off the hook here, um, orally speaking. And that question is this. Before we started recording, you mentioned um, that you and your wife enjoyed a a very nice uh, dinner of French cheeses last night. Um, And I think the question that that brings up for me is, uh, what would you call former Orioles prospect Henry Urudia if, if he was enjoying such a meal? I don't know. Uh, that would be uh, Henry Fondue Rudia. Oh, very good. Now, Sam, this is not a pun, but uh, I just want you to know that um, listening to a recent baseball uh, broadcast with the Baltimore Orioles, I learned that uh, Yenier Cano has a uh, a son who is two days older than my um, recently minted daughter. So ah. he has a son that is only two days older than um, than uh, Nico, which is not a joke or a pun. But um, if you don't know, now you know. Can know. <laughs> Baltimoreans.